This is uh, Page Care Theory 2, Unit 2, Part 2A, Respiratory Review. So uh, let's review some terminology, see, uh, see what you remember here. <coughs> How would you define tidal volume? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that's minute volume, yeah. You're too far ahead of yourself. Okay, so how about uh, tidal volume then? Yeah. Isn't that just simply the volume of air held in the lungs? Uh, not held in the lungs per se. I think you got the right idea, but yeah. Yeah, with each breath. Yeah, amount of air exhaled with one breath. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what about uh, functional residual capacity? Yes, yes, you're exactly right. It's, uh, it's either the amount inhaled or the amount exhaled. The only we reason we say typically the amount exhaled is because they use a manometer to measure exhaled volume as opposed to inhaled volume. So, so yeah, it's, it's the same thing, either breath in or breath out, but we measure breath out, so yeah, absolutely. Functional residual capacity, this is a good one. You gotta know FRC, FRC is important. Yeah, Riley? That's exactly right. The amount of air remaining in the lungs after exhalation. Um, what, um, what tool do you use for CHFers and COPDers that increases the FRC? CPAP. CPAP, yeah, exactly. And CPAP uses PEEP, and PEEP stands for? <coughs> positive end expiratory pressure. Good, excellent. <coughs> excellent. What's anatomical space? <laughs> anatomical, anatomical space. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Anatomical space, is that just a non-functional or non-gas exchange of parts of the airway? Yes, that's exactly right. So anatomical dead space is the, uh, the air passages where there's no gas exchange. So mouth, nose, trachea, uh, right, left, main stem, bronchi, secondary bronchi, tertiary bronchi, etc. Yep, so it's, what's uh, pathological dead space? Yep. Pulmonary uh, Yes, a pulmonary embolus would be a great example of a pathological dead space. So, so it's pathological because air is getting down to the alveolus, but it's not diffusing across to the bloodstream because the, uh, there's a clot in the lungs. So, so that alveolar area there would be considered a pathological dead space. Yeah, excellent. Uh, what's the lung parenchyma? Or parenchyma, I don't even know how to pronounce that, Briar. Yeah, it's a function, they call it the functional part of the lungs. Yeah, functional part of the And what's uh, pulmonary compliance? <coughs> Did I tell you guys I got a puppy over there over Christmas? <laughs> so it's not a puppy puppy. It's a three-year-old uh, golden rescue. It's, it's a boy. Uh, his name is Gryffindor, or Griff for short. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, 
I'd show you a picture, but I forgot my adapter for my iPhone, but I'll show you a picture uh, next time I see you. It's just, it's just a spontaneous random thing, you know. I'm easily distracted. Squirrel, you know. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's a golden. It's a, if you promise not to go through my phone, that's what it looks like. Yeah, so pulmonary, <laughs> pulmonary compliance. Anybody? Can I like pass it around? No, it's gonna. Die. Phone's gonna die. Okay. Yeah. If anyone wants, <laughs> any, anyone wants to see it, he can come see later. But uh, pulmonary compliance. Anyone? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so a lung that's compliant means uh, if you're doing bag valve mass ventilation, it's easy to squeeze the bag and the, the chest expands easily. If the lung is not compliant, uh, it's more difficult to ventilate, like you have higher airway pressure. So things like bronchospasm, pulmonary edema, pneumonia would diminish compliance. So think of compliant as, uh, you know, the patient is compliant, meaning they take their prescription meds faithfully, like me. I'm a very good patient. Pride myself on my compliance. You know, staying away from Kentucky Fried Chicken might be a different story for me, but. Um, how is oxygen transported? What percentage of uh, oxygen is transported by hemoglobin? 98% and the rest is transported, yeah, plasma, dissolved blood plasma, good. And what's the normal uh, pH? 7.35 to 7.45, good. And the normal PaO2? Uh, yeah, 90 is about right, 80 to 100 is the range, yeah. And what does, what, what is PaO2 exactly? What does that mean? Partial pressure of oxygen. In the what? In the who? Yeah. Yeah, in the blood, arterial blood specifically, yeah. So PaO2 would be uh, partial pressure of oxygen dissolved in blood plasma in the arterial blood, yeah. Uh, so PaCO2 would be partial pressure of CO2 dissolved in arterial blood, right? As opposed to venous blood. You can do venous gases, um, but uh, most gases are done uh, as arterial gases. Uh, okay, so a uh, little review of the Bohr effect. You got a 50-50 chance of getting these right, so let's start with the first one. As we exhale, we blow off. CO2. Good. <laughs> I like the way you guys responded all together. Let's do that again. It's exciting. The blood pH rises and becomes more alkalitic or alkaline. Yeah, becomes more alkaline. You're blowing off CO2, so it's like carbonic acid, right? It breaks down into water and CO2, so you're blowing off acids. So the blood becomes more alkaline. And hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen 
increases, yeah, because your blood's alkaline, hemoglobin becomes a stronger magnet, so hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen increases at the lung level, that's good. Um, then when you get down to the tissue level, uh, CO2 or O2 diffuses from the tissue to the blood? CO2, CO2 yeah. CO2 diffuses 20 times uh, to one uh, in terms of uh, affinity. So CO2 comes out of tissue into the blood and that shifts the blood pH to the acidic side. Hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen decreases. Yeah, so it releases oxygen from hemoglobin, dissolves in blood plasma, diffuses the tissues. Good. That's, that's the Reader's Digest of the Bohr effect. Good. Important concepts, right? Because if you think about how patients ventilate and oxygenate, uh, it falls into this area. So if you get this concept, if you get this concept down, uh, you're doing well. So, you know, um, when you become an advanced care paramedic and a critical care paramedic, um, one of the drugs you'll carry is sodium bicarbonate. Sodium bicarbonate is an alkaline solution. An alkaline solution is a, is a very good drug under certain circumstances. Might be very good for treating a tricyclic overdose, for treating someone who's profoundly acidotic. But if you just gave it willy-nilly to a person and you made them alkalotic, so you weren't correcting an acidosis, but you made them alkalotic, that would impair tissue oxygenation, right? Because the hemoglobin would grab onto oxygen, wouldn't release that the tissue. So um, in the 1960s uh, and early 70s, when uh, Emergency came out, that show with Johnny and Roy, uh, standard practice back then was every cardiac arrest patient, you gave them sodium bicarbonate. But what they found in the 80s was that um, too many of those cardiac arrest patients, especially the, the fresh cardiac arrests, where their pH was becoming alkalotic. And so we were keeping them dead instead of resuscitating because they weren't getting tissue oxygenation, right? So that's the whole concept. Uh, list some examples of things that cause a shunt. Maybe you can describe a shunt first. All that talk about KFCs made me really hungry. I'm really hungry right now. Gonna go home and have a piece of lettuce. <laughs> a carrot. Yeah, I'm gonna treat myself and have a carrot. I might even have two piece, two carrots and a piece of celery. I'm definitely gonna. I'm gonna have a pea long before I get home. Not that part. I have to take care of. You know, I'm, that's TMI. But my everything I tell you guys is probably TMI. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So if there's an area in the lungs that aren't isn't getting like adequate ventilation, then yeah. we'll get vasoconstriction Yeah, that's a beautiful description. That's perfect. Yeah, exactly. So if a part of the lung's not getting air from whatever reason, the list we're going to go over, um, you get uh, capillary constriction. You get a pre-capillary, post-capillary um, sphincter constriction, and blood gets shunted to other areas of the lung that are getting air. Perfect. Um, so what are some examples of things that cause a shunt? Briar? Pulmonary uh, edema. yeah. Good. What's the mother of all shunts? Um, that's not a shunt. It could be a partial shunt, but it's mostly something else. What's a pulmonary embolus? Yeah, it's a pathological dead space. Yeah. So good. Uh, what's another example of a shunt then? So pulmonary edema, what else? Sorry? 
I, oh, so tension pneumo would be probably a combination of pathological dead space and a shunt. And, and the truth is, no one condition is exactly purely shunt or exactly purely pathological dead space. It's always a little bit of a mix, but there's some things that are mostly shunt. Pulmonary edema would be one of them. <coughs> Any others? Right, that's the mother of all shunts, right? It's a foreign body airway obstruction. You got something obstructing your trachea, there's no air getting in the lungs. That's the mother of all shunts. Uh, other shunts? Don't overthink of it. Think, think what, what conditions interfere with air moving down to the gas exchanging areas <coughs> besides fluid in the lungs? Yeah. Aspirating. Yeah, aspirating something. Perfect. And that could be aspirating fluid, could be aspirating a foreign body. Yeah. What else? Anaphylaxis, yeah, for sure. You can get bronchoconstriction, yeah. So bronchoconstriction, we can throw in asthma, we can throw in COPD, all those things. Uh, yeah, so uh, mucus plugs, pneumonias with infection, bronchospasm, uh, all of those sorts of things, right, causes um, How do you treat someone who's hyperventilating, whose minute volume exceeds metabolic demands? Can we give them oxygen, or is oxygen bad? If they're saturated, fine, you don't need to give them oxygen, but there's no harm in giving them oxygen. What about a paper bag? No. No, good, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, no paper bags. Well, but why no paper bags? Why not paper bags? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I wouldn't, make it black and white. I mean, you could give them a paper bag, but if you're going to give them a paper bag, you want to do it with some serious caution uh, because there have been um, cases of, of um, uh, mortality where patients have rebreathed in a paper bag in the hospital um, when they were hyperventilating because they, it was a compensatory thing or where they rebreathed too much of their own CO2. Um, so it's not without its risks. I'd say if you're really cautious about it, I mean, if you're in the middle of the woods and you were attacked by a bear and your friend, um, though uninjured, is hyperventilating, uh, I might give him a bag, but I'd be really careful, <laughs> you know. You know. Um, but yeah, generally we don't, uh, we don't have people rebreathe through a non-rebreather mask that's not hooked up to oxygen. We don't have them rebreathe through a paper bag. Uh, so the point of this is uh, you get someone's hyperventilation, hyperventilating, ask some questions first. Take a history, auscultate the chest, um, see if is this truly panic or anxiety or is it something else entirely, right? Uh, you can't just jump into uh, coaching the breathing. And I promise you, you're gonna work with medics who the first thing they say when they see someone who's breathing fast is let's slow your breathing down. And that's just not the right approach because if someone's having a, an MI and they're breathing fast, maybe it's because they're having an MI, <laughs> you know? Slow your breathing down. What, and, and I can't say the word anymore because I'm not allowed <laughs> to. And let me slow my breathing down and <laughs> Is this how you treat people? You want me to? <laughs> <laughs> um, so oxygen wouldn't be harmful in someone who's hyperventilating, but would be probably unnecessary. Um, how does the pulse oximeter work? 
<laughs> it's magic, yes. It is magic. Uh, I think I told you, the first time I started using a pulse oximeter, I nearly wet my pants with excitement. I just thought it was the most amazing thing. But, um, yeah. The sign's alike in one finger and the other. And yeah. the result is how much, uh, what all is binding, binding, what all is bound in blue. Yeah. They'll change the color, which will <laughs> you tape, I didn't hear what you said at the end. You tapered off, but uh, that was you were losing confidence in what you were saying there. Yeah, so it's so it's yeah exactly. So yeah, bound with oxygen. So it's red and infrared light that that shines through your tissues, and the uh, amount of light is is measured on the other side, absorbed light, and the amount of absorbed light will depend on whether hemoglobin is bound with oxygen or not bound with oxygen. Um, can a pulse oximeter distinguish between oxygen bound to hemoglobin and carbon monoxide bound to hemoglobin? No, right. So if you get someone yeah, who's been, a, you knew I was going to ask, hey, it's good. If I'm getting predictable, it's because you guys know your stuff now and it's starting to, it's all kind of gelling together. But uh, yeah, so if you get someone who comes out of a burning building or the smoke inhalation, they might be saturating 100%, but just remember that could be CO, not, not oxygen. Yeah, Ingrid? So I know you were saying you were so excited the first time. Um, in your opinion, how much do you think uh, technology that paramedics use is going to change over the next like 10 to 20 years? I think it's going to change dramatically. Yeah. I think it's some stuff is just almost inconceivable. Uh, things are going to change. I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping that um, uh, you know we have drones big enough to carry paramedics, so you can just like be a first responder in a drone. That would to me would be the coolest <laughs> thing. You know. You got a patient in California? I'm coming out by Hyperloop. I'll be there in <laughs> half an hour. Yeah. You know, on that topic, you mentioned uh, like at the start there, they're thinking of a paramedics of portable ultrasounds. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, I think it's great. I think it, it's being done now. It's uh, the big question with uh, portable ultrasound is, what's the cost-benefit ratio? Like, um, it, is our Will our ultrasound findings make a difference between uh, what we do for the patient or where we take the patient? That's a big question. I think there's uh, you know two two camps on that. One one that feels that uh, there are things that we can find find on ultrasound, like a, a definitive diagnosis of a pneumothorax or an intra-abdominal bleed, and that tells us we're going to a trauma center versus a locus hospital. So, but in the other camp that says you know this is very expensive, the training is expensive, and the cost-benefit ratio just isn't there. So. Uh, people are in two camps on that. But I think we're going to see some amazing technology. I think we're going to see point of care blood, um, blood draws and, and blood analysis uh, once we get a, a decent, really inexpensive device that'll um, analyze the blood and give us a whole bunch of really valuable values. Uh, so I think things are going to change pretty dramatically. Um, I think. Um, it's been a long day, and uh, we probably don't want to talk about the oxyhemoglobin association curve. Oh, at, uh, oh you want to do it? To. Would you? Okay. Okay. Keep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, when do I see you guys again? Friday. I'll see you Friday. Oh yeah, I'll see you for ambul sops. When's when do I see you for ambulance ops? No, there's ambulance ops and then there's yeah, so there's two.
Do I see you tomorrow for Anvil Socks? No. It's Friday. Yeah. Okay.